All right, everybody. This is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And I'll tell you what, we have a packed show with very interesting people. So we're going to really start rocking and rolling very fast here and keep on rolling through the whole program. We're going to start off with a very famous and accomplished and actually kind of important journalist, Jason Berry who covers both investigative reporting, and he's the guy who kind of broke open that whole story about the pedophilia in in the church. Um, And I'm not going to pronounce your name right, so I'm going to let you do it. Uh, The first name is Marvin Millon, and the business is Marvin Millon. Marvin Villon. Okay, so um, Marvin, Marv, Marvin, okay. Marvin is a sensational designer of clothing, of costumes, and events. And where do you hear more about what he did just recently? And it involves St. Charles Avenue and the camel. Let me just do that, okay? <laughs> but it's really a longer-term story about his design cap- capabilities. Um, but there's a, a, an interesting synergy between the two guys that I have in the studio with me at this moment. I'm going to talk to you about it in just a second. I just want to tell you also that Gia Hamilton with the Joan Mitchell Center is here, and she's going to talk both about what's going on there, but also a new book that she has coming out. And, boy, she put some serious thought into that book, judging from the advances that I read. And I hope that um, Vernon McKay is going to get here today. If not, he'll come on the next one, and he's going to be talking to you about what you got to do about those trees with the storm season coming on, as we just did um, recently really taking care of those branches and things that hang over your roof and can rip it apart and cause tons of damage for you or your neighbors. Come. That's what we're talking about. Now, Jason is fascinated with New Orleans funerals, right? And Marvin works with them very much intrinsically as part of what he does. I'm not sure where to start. I'm going to start with Marvin, and he's going to talk about what he does, and then we're going to get some historical perspective from Jason. How's that for the order? Makes sense. All right, Marvin. What were you doing on a camel on St. Charles Avenue? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, it started out um, as a joke a couple years ago. Um, I was asked to be the king for the Divine Lady Social Aid and Pleasure Club um, for 2018. Um, it was Long and hard thought out uh, did a theme um, and where I wanted to go. So I said, why not um, find something that I'm genuine about, which is fabrics, fine fabrics. So I chose the Indians um, to represent. American Indians or Indian Indians? Indian Indians. Indian Indians, yes. okay. Yes. Um, and however, um, and that's how that came about. Um, and along with my designs, when putting together something or a, a craft, then you want it to tell a story and it all makes sense. Um, then I thought about what other way would I represent the Indians um, in an authentic way than writing down St. Charles Avenue okay. on Frank the Camel. On Frank the Camel, no less. And the camel came from, of all places, Mississippi. Martin, Mississippi, yes. Where is Martin? Um, It's right outside of Jackson. Okay. Right outside of Jackson, Mississippi. So maybe roughly about, I want to say it was like a three-hour ride. And what are they maybe? doing with the camel up there? Well, there's the camel form. Um, she actually has... She has um, about a dozen camels, um, and she has her own business where she makes um, camel milk and camel soap. So, and, and to be honest with you, I was just as shocked as you are um, when I got there and to see all these, um, a wild animal there, basically, and I just didn't understand, you know, what was her significance of having those um, camels, and she said that it started out um, just as a hobby, and it became business. How do you start a camel hobby? <laughs> I'm not going to go too far down the road because I, we have too much else to talk about, but um, so the... And, and, and camel milk soap? Camel milk soap. What is that all about? Why um, is that a good thing? Just, I'm just curious. <laughs> I can't Just curious. That. Okay. All right. Let me go back to, all right, so you're choosing a theme for a social aid and pleasure club parade. Exactly. Why are you involved with social aid and pleasure club 
parades. Let's start there. Um, it's where my heart is. Um, I started out as a young kid. Uh, started out with the Sudan Social Aid and Pleasure Club, which is a club that usually comes out in um, the mid part of November. Um, I live, breathe, and die second line brass bands. It's something that I love to do. Um, warms up my heart. So again, why not become a king of a social aid and pleasure club, something that you love dearly? Um, I was asked by the president, Miss Angelina Seaver, um, and I took the offer on. So, uh, okay, I understand that it's really important to you, but again, let's go back to the foundation of um, the Second Line uh, Social Aid and Pleasure Club and why it's important to you and to the city, because we're going to come back then to Jason and talk about how that came through historically. Right. Well, it's a day of celebration. It's a day of celebration. Um, it warms your heart. It's not often that you see individuals within this city. They can get together and have a, a, a wonderful party and just rejoice in happiness. So it really is. It, it's just a question of, of having that, those moments of, ha of happiness. Of happiness and what warms your heart. Right. Um, and you, throughout the year, make costumes, make costumes and yes. clothing. Yes, ma'am. Okay, tell me more about that. Well, it um, started out as a um, as a hobby. Uh, as uh, we know, it all becomes a business then. Um, I've had the pleasure of, I guess I'll go back, um, in high school, I always knew that I had a, a feel for design and um, fine fabrics and jewels. So, again. Why um, not? <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it started out in high school and it, it, it from a hobby to a business. Um, roughly about four years ago, um, I had the pleasure of uh, making some unique outfits for a group of ladies, um, individuals. Um, was not very serious about the business, um, but then I was ex I had the exposure um, and I started to receive more and more um, compliments about the work that I was producing. Yeah. Um, again, it's the culture motivation from the community that makes a big difference um about maybe three years ago i had the two years ago i had the pleasure of designing um for one of the most extraordinary queens um in the city which is the zulu queen miss donna glapion um it was a great experience it was a wonderful ride um and again that gave me exposure as well um Moving right along, I had the privilege of working with the Queen for 2018, Miss Tora Madison Washington. Um, that was a great experience as well. So, um, again, it warms my heart. It excites me. Um, designing is what I love to do. Um, costuming as well. So why not, um, if you're going to design for everybody else of royalty, why not design for yourself? Right. Okay. <laughs> um, Jason, let's go back to the roots of this tradition and, and answer the question from both of you as to why this is so important and unique to New Orleans. Well, the social aid and pleasure clubs are really an outgrowth of the benevolent societies that existed in the uh, 19th century and into the 20th century as well. But as the, um, as life insurance, uh, excuse me, as burial insurance became such an important part of the urban fabric. Uh, many of the old organizations, um, uh, Masons and uh, the, the range of uh, benevolent societies that existed to give everyone a proper burial as they began to fade out, the tradition of marching and parading uh, to celebrate life, uh, as he has just said, uh, took on a, a kind of momentum uh, of itself. The, the film I'm working on is called City of a Million Dreams, and it is um, based in, in some measure on a book of the same title that I have coming out in the fall that, that follows funerals as a thread through the life of the city. Uh, the film focuses on two people, Dr. Michael White, the clarinetist, uh, through whom we see the origins of jazz, especially with his family, his ancestors who were there at the dawn of, of the music, and uh, Deb Cotton, who was a uh, big red cotton, who was a blogger for Gambit and chronicled um, the second line culture and sadly uh, passed away a year ago. So we are uh, paying homage and, and tribute to her 
we have a Kickstarter campaign that's going on right now and would appreciate any support that your listeners would like to give. Just go to kickstarter.com and follow the links to City of a Million Dreams. That's not um, uh, a hard uh, n- name to remember. I mean, it's, it's very distinctive. So the marching. So um, I've, I've been a little confused about uh, the origins of the marching because there are so many different cultural threads in it. There, and and um, I, I saw in your preview about your film, you talked about the circles in Congo Square and then the straight lines of the yellow fever. Um, well, let me, yes. <laughs> Basically, Congo Square was ring dances. The enslaved Africans who were brought here and um, performed uh, on Sundays at a makeshift Sunday marketplace, which is now, of course, contained in Louis Armstrong Park. Um, the, the earliest dances were actually burial choreographies, people dancing their tributes to the mother culture, to the ancestors. And as time passed and the dances became more elaborate, it's interesting, uh, our, our guest who rode the camel uh, <laughs> did so uh, with his uh, uh, costume uh, uh, from India, some of the historical accounts are, are quite uh, uh, descriptive of the costumes worn by the Africans, including turbans, uh, including feathers, a, a whole range of costume, um, of costumery, I guess you'd say. And flowing out of that tradition after the Civil War, when slavery ended, as many African Americans began to join the marching band, they slowly transformed a tradition that was a linear march, a military uh, cadence. And over time, the rings of Congo Square uh, fell in behind the line. So the film, in a sense, is a story, the coming together of the ring and the line. So so this is is fascinating to me because, okay, I would have called it the reverse. I would have said the marching bands of the African-Americans preceded the marching band. What you're saying is that the European marching bands well, the, were already a tradition? And oh, so, yeah. yeah uh, 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 how did, how, tell me more about that. Sure thing. Well, the first uh, account of a burial procession that I could find in the research I did for the book, which took several years, was in 1789. It was the funeral for Carlos III, the king of Spain, who... Uh, New Orleans at the time was a Spanish colony, and the king died. It took four or five months for the word to reach New Orleans by ship from across the Atlantic. And so they had this elaborate procession uh, that the Cabildo scribes uh, uh, recounted in in, uh, quite pointed detail. Uh, The maces, the capes. Uh, what the people wore. The interesting thing is, although they mentioned the orchestra several times that marched in the street, they referred to it as an orchestra, um, they don't say what kind of music they played. Now, this was not a jazz funeral, as we would call it, but it, it really kind of provided a foundation for that linear movement of military bands who were ennobling the person who had died. But that had to have been going on, right? So they didn't come up with the idea of a marching band for uh, uh, King Carlos. That was something that was already a tradition that was happening in the community. Well, absolutely. Had to be. Cause well, well, of course. But, but you have to realize that marching bands stretch back across time uh, in Europe to ancient Greece, um, the, uh, you know, the Hebrews. Uh, so the traditions transplanted from Europe to New Orleans, as with traditions transplanted uh, by the Africans who were brought here, uh, obviously against their will, uh, took on new forms of life and expression. And the the marching band tradition was uh, quite well rooted by the time of the Civil War. So, so, and then you said that the that the African Americans who participated in the circle dances in Congo Square join in the marching bands. Are you telling me that there were integrated marching bands at that time? Well, African Americans 
gained entry to the marching band tradition, well, started their own marching bands in the 1870s and 1880s. See, that's what I'm thinking, that they must have had that, right? Well, it goes back to piggyback what he said. Um, yes, there were circles, but also um, the second line was actually introduced through the through the enrichment of the uh, of the Sunday. Um, the slaves were free on Sunday, so that's how they would enjoy and embrace each other because of their free day. So they had the opportunity to basically, like we do this day and age, Sunday is the day that we come together as family members and we enjoy the culture that you know that we have today. So it's kind of similar um, in time back then. So that's exactly what they used to do. Um, I'm not sure how they would have integrated each other. I never really looked into that portion of it. But I do know how it got started. They may not necessarily have initially, Well, I suspect. Well, there are a number of newspaper accounts that I uh, unearthed of um, collisions, shall we say, uh, of whites attacking blacks as they're parading behind bands. So this was a process that worked itself out across uh, better than a century from the 1880s well into the 1960s and 70s. Part of what we're focusing on in the film is how the beauty of this parading tradition, this marching tradition that flowed out of the funerals is now beleaguered by violence, uh, by gun violence. There have been a number of shootings, and Deb Cotton, the, the woman who is so key to this film, it's an amazing story. She, uh, after 36 surgeries, she was shot in the Mother's Day Parade of 2013, one of 18 people. And after 36 surgeries, she asked the court, uh, as they were sentencing the young men who you know, had been convicted, to, to give them a lesser sentence so that they would have time in midlife to get out of prison and redeem themselves. The judge complimented her on her courage and compassion and then gave them a life sentence. She actually went to visit in prison the young man who shot her. She forgave him. I mean, to me, she's like a character from Shakespeare, Portia, who says in The Merchant of Venice that the quality of mercy is twice blessed. He who gives, she who receives. And um, so we're trying to portray this culture of death and resurrection as it is symbolically dramatized through the funerals, but to also give it a, 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 a sense of the reality of the day and the, and the culture that we live in. I mean, guns are part of American life, sadly, and this is something we think we need to put a spotlight on. Interestingly, you said also just a moment ago about the violence that was occurring back then uh, and... Primarily, are you saying it was the white groups that were attacking the black groups? Well, yes. I mean, there's a long history of um, white violence uh, toward uh, African Americans in in New Orleans and other parts of the South. Um, I think where things really began to change, though, was in the early 20th century when when these massive parades uh, began to across the streets of the city uh, with groups like the the Young Tuxedo, the Excelsior, these various brass bands, who were allied with these various benevolent societies. And that was an important turning point. Mm. Uh, Young Tuxedos, what was the other group? Uh, The Excelsior was another Mm. one. Um, The Olympia, of course, uh, became the the famous mid-century band. So with the larger parades comes a crossing of boundaries. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, your take on all this is is very different now because you are really focused on the celebratory side of this and and the enjoyment, as you said, the joy, the heartwarming aspects of it. So it's so interesting, these two faces. It's like the two faces of Mardi Gras, right? The smiling face and the sad face, once again expressing through this cultural tradition. Right. Does it worry you when you are parading? It does. It does. It worries me. Um, it bothers me a lot because there are different gen- different generations there. There's um, your grandmother, there's your mom, there's your dad, your grandfather, 
your children, your nieces, your nephews. So yes, I do worry. Um, and I just pray each and every time that I'm there that God watches over, over us throughout this celebration and that's supposed to be peaceful, um, that's supposed to be very family-oriented. Um, so yeah, it does bother me. It, it does. Um, it bothers me even more that, again, just like um, he mentioned, Miss Deb Cotton was murdered on um, the Mother's Day parade. And again, a week before um, the Divine Ladies paraded, when I had my showcase, there was another killing of an individual at that particular parade on Mother's Day again. Well, hold on. I just want to make one small correction. Um, Deb was not murdered at the parade. She was wounded. And she had a series of surgeries. She lived for another uh, four years. Ultimately, she died uh, of her wound. But I, I'm a little cautious about using the word murder. That's right. all. Yeah. Sure. Exactly. But um, it, it is, um, it is it's just plain called sad that um, something that is so celebratory, that is so, as you emphasize, heartwarming, that is so bringing family and friends together has of late also been the scene or the setting for these violent events. And um, I don't really, uh, it seems like it's worse in the past, say, decade than it used to be. We just didn't really think, at least maybe I was just innocent, because I come here in the 70s, and um, during Mardi Gras, I would just go anywhere in the city, anywhere. Well, and feel totally safe because it was like all bets are off. It's carnival, and we are all together for carnival. But now that seems to have broken down. Well, I think you see it manifested in other aspects of, of society. Uh, we, are, we are a country that has so many guns. And this, is not, this is not a political speech, but... The reality is with all of these school killings now and the reports that there's something like two guns for every person in the United States, we're just an overarmed uh, society. And in, until we can figure out a way to, to reduce uh, the uh, pathologies that cause people to do this, I, I think it's going to be there. One of the beautiful things about the second line tradition that he is very much a part of, riding that camel. I love that <laughs> image. Um, but, you know, the people in these organizations, the Sudan, the Lady Buck Jumpers, there are so many different groups, and they parade every Sunday for 39 weeks, basically between late August and, and uh, June. June. Um, so there's only one month that they're not out there parading in July. Well, 13 <laughs> weeks, 13 weeks. But look, okay. but there, there's something important here. The craft and the detail and the attention that people put into their costumes is, is an art form. And it's also a manifestation of that spirituality that sweeps people up in the dancing, the spontaneous choreographies uh, in the street behind the brass band. And, you know, this, this is a really important tradition in this city because it keeps people together. And, and I think also it's had a profound impact on the arts in general. And I'll be really interested to hear Gia's take on this when we bring her into uh, the show. Um, I, I, I believe that uh, even the most uh, esoteric uh, intellectual artists that come here from the Northeast or wherever, they are infected almost immediately by the power and the beauty of these cultural traditions. I agree. What do you, I want to ask you both, what do you um, hope your parading, your costuming, your work uh, will achieve, and likewise, what are you hoping your film and your book will achieve? Let me close with those two questions. Okay. Well, um, well, the book will be out in November. It's a, it's a history of the city from the unveil to the statues coming down, and I hope it gives readers a sense of, of how this culture of spectacle evolved and how important it is in New Orleans. The film, likewise, please support us at kickstarter.com. Uh, the film tells the story of the city through the evolution of burial traditions. 
Um, with me, from my aspect, on um, what I hope to gain from this is um, bringing, just making everybody aware of the the people that we have in the city and what they're able to do. Um, a lot of people look at um, New Orleans in a negative aspect, but I just want them to know that we do have talent here, and there's raw talent where we are able um, to display that um, through you know, through each individual, there's different, you know, there's different cultural backgrounds. Um, just as myself, I'm representing the Indian culture in a city like New Orleans, just bringing awareness to everybody and just making sure that they are aware that they are citizens here, natives of New Orleans, Louisiana, that actually just has raw talent. Did you, did you check in with any of the um, uh, Indian people who live here? No, it's, uh, <laughs> I did not, but I'll tell yeah. you a funny story. Um, we were in the Hyatt um, hotel downtown the Hyatt a Regency and we were taking pictures in the lobby um, with a professional photographer and there was a gentleman walked up with a turban. Got really nervous about it uh, because I did a little research on, on the Indian culture um, and what everything means but when he walked up he um, asked me what's going on here is someone getting married and I said no no one's getting married he said explain to me what you're doing and he said it in such a serious manner made me a little nervous but he congratulated me on a job well done putting together these costumes because he um, he just really thought that I had um, that they came from India and they were authentically made in India. So you you did your work so well in researching it and de and developing the theme and paying attention to the details of the uh, cultural origins of the work that an Indian man recognized what you did as authentic. That is a huge compliment. I would say so. Absolutely. That is a huge compliment. That is just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I'm going to ask you guys to stay in the room for a bit as we segue in and, and join uh, Gia Hamilton into the conversation. And um, if anybody has to walk out because they need to get someplace, uh, fine. But I kind of want to just talk a little bit about the interaction between um, uh, Gia's world, which is um, a world that... I generally tend to think of as rooted in the contemporary because she works with um, current artists who make contemporary work um, who uh, are join uh, the Joan Mitchell Center retreat and have studio time to make new work, that, and they may be from other places or from here. Um, but the book that you've just written again, um, does what these gentlemen are talking about, and that is tracing um, the roots of some of the traditions that we live with today that are evolving and changing. Um, so tell me, you can start wherever you want. You can start with what the Joan Mitchell Center is doing or start with your book. I, I guess, well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. It's, it's fun. I haven't been on in a while, so I'm happy to be back. Um, for those in the community who know um, my professional work at the Joan Mitchell Center, it's an artist residency uh, program of the Joan Mitchell Foundation um, that opened in 2015. And so we support, you're right, local artists, visiting artists, and international artists. Um, you know, we, we work with contemporary artists who are thinking about now, but I think in a place like New Orleans, um, it's, it's very difficult to think about now and contemporary terms and contemporary um, ideas without tracing that back to uh, a historical lens. And so many of the artists that come from other places are really interested in New Orleans as a place. So the design of the residency is really rooted in this idea that, you know, um, the Joan Mitchell Center is situated in the Seventh Ward and that that particular place, its history actually influenced the way that um, people move in the city, the work that they create, the things that they see, um, the experiences that they have. And, and what we have found is that um, our local artists are able to have a kind of um, a blank canvas to reevaluate their careers, their, their process, um, and sometimes it reaffirms the work that they're doing and sometimes it expands it or changes it. For our visiting artists, what we find is that New Orleans um, sends them into a bit of a rabbit hole of really complex and layered histories and stories and narratives that are really hard to um, understand. And so that they find that really fascinating. And there's sort of something for everyone to sort of um, be intrigued by. And so um, to kind of segue into my book, um, 
I'm an applied anthropologist, so a lot of what I do is um, take qualitative information from oral histories, from um, stories and narratives, et cetera, and think about the way that that influences solving problems and creating structures and models. Um, and so, of course, that works really well with the Joe Mitchell Center. But what I also realized is that um, as a cultural steward, it was really important to help visiting artists enter into the city in a way that felt um, in the vein of sort of radical hospitality or sustainable tourism in a way that they were able to understand where they were from a non-tourist perspective. How do you create an exchange? How do you give these histories and narratives to people who don't have a point of reference? Um, and so this tour of the place that we're in, in the seventh ward, became um, a way that I would orient all of the artists. Um, but I was really interested in kind of blending um, the work that I was doing uh, for my dissertation with the work at the center. And that was really centered around um, ideas of uh, <laughs> femininity, of uh, feminist and womanist thought, but also of the concept of matriarchy. Um, and so personally, what I've been exploring for the past 10 years um, is how to deconstruct, retool the concept of single black mother um, but actually reclaim the term matriarchy so that we actually move to a, a much more expansive way that we talk about female leadership and power. Um, and if we think about the seventh ward specifically, um, I kind of bring us back to a place in the 1700s where Plaxage was kind of booming this system, this oppressive system that actually paired young women with, you know, aristocratic men, um, you know, sometimes for their gains, sometimes not. Um, and that these really sophisticated social systems required uh, negotiation, they required sort of forethought and vision, but they definitely required um, bravery, courage, and leadership. And sometimes the mothers would be the leaders and would kind of create an environment for that daughter and that family to thrive, and other times the daughter was left based, you know, having to sort of figure out how to build power and how to subvert um, that power to um, basically create a life for herself or, and or her family. I, I'm just, you know, it's so um, interesting that this was a subject that I was trying to explain to somebody in the past 48 hours. Yes. Um, I, I have, um, I have uh, some Airbnb space in my house. I have a big house, and I, and, uh, you know, I don't use it all, so financially it's a good thing. And the fascinating thing is that I get these really interesting people as a rule because our house is very arty, and so we play on that, and we get arty, art, artist-oriented people. But I was trying to explain this whole tradition because I was trying to explain essentially the tendency towards polygamy in this city. Right? So I was trying to say, because I think I was telling a, a woman maybe who was thinking about coming here, I says, yeah, well, um, yeah, but uh, let me just warn you, you know, of how things work here. And um, and then I, I made the connection in my mind between that that tendency, which is, it's worldwide, it's not New Orleans. But I made the connection between it and, and that era. I, I, I forgot about the word plissage, and you'll have to define it for us. But I was trying. I trace it back to that period because, from my understanding, and my understanding is extremely limited, the way it worked in part, and sometimes, let's just say, is that, yes, a, a, a Creole of color woman would be paired with some young white guy to live together. To keep him out of trouble, basically, I think was what I understand was the <laughs> intention in the white family. In the Creole family, it was um, it was a form of, I think, income redistribution in a way, in part. And then when he married into the white family, he was supposed to abandon his Creole of color family, but usually did not, and basically maintained those two. Tell me, am I way off base, or is this how you understand it? No, no, no. I think I think those elements of um, of a very specific pairing, like this is a, this is about a system of um, of partnership and pairing. Um, you know, typically would happen um, through a ball or through a gathering, um, in which 
the men, let's, let's just say like we're in the 1700s, so women don't have that much of a choice, but they're paired. Um, and you're right. Uh, what, is, what is really meant to have happened is, is that um, this man has access to this woman in a particular way, right? And so we know all of the other sort of structures um, that are happening in this country and specifically in New Orleans at this time. So we also understand that um, the women in this case are not the ones who are in direct control of their destiny. And I think that the point that I'm trying to make about Plassage is that... Um, they had to figure out how to claim their destiny... Absolutely. Within through the negotiations with Absolutely. that system. Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the things that would happen is are that, you know, the men would, uh, on occasion, buy homes in the women's names. And some of that had to do with um, wanting to remain... Um, having their marriage remain socially intact so that they weren't connected financially to another family or to another woman. Um, but what it meant is that um, women were able to sort of build economic power, right, through having this asset that they could then pass on through their own lineage. Which links up to a show that I had not too long ago with, um, I'm going to forget her name, but she's one of the leaders of the affordable housing movement who was talking about how critical home ownership is to your position in the economic Sheena order Griffin. of things. Yeah, Sheena It wasn't Griffin. her, but... Um, it, oh, maybe uh, Fair Housing? Was it, was it the new executive director? Her first name is... I, I hate... I, I, I can't even go here because we she's going to be... We know Jane's Place, I'm going to shout them out, are doing a lot of work around this Jane's okay. Place, yeah. around land, community land trust work. Um, so, I mean, it's essentially... It's, it's, um, it's a completely different narrative than um, someone who's visiting would get or understand about that particular place. But it's, but it's I think, very important because, um, Jean, you're actually on my tour. Your house is on my tour. Because um, in the contemporary landscape, uh, women still very much run the, the Bayou Road business corridor and really are, you know, are economic leaders in this community. And so it's important to tie in the way in which the kind of spirit of female leadership uh, translates into today. And so what it, what it does is it helps our artists um, better understand um, kind of the complexities of New Orleans and the way that it functions. Um, and it helps them to have a different vantage point, but also it gives them an entry into uh, questioning reality, questioning power, questioning um, land and culture and the way it's produced and who it, who it benefits. And it also brings them back to the power, the, the, the question of um, subverting power, which is something that we talk about a lot in the contemporary art world. Um, you know, when, when, when is it appropriate to be very specific and overt about a message? And when does it make sense to suggest, to present something um, for conversation? And so um, it is, it's become... This tour that I've been um, had the pleasure of giving uh, Thurgood Marshall the Third through Studio Museum of Harlem Ford um, a tour and and, and uh, Ford Foundation's board a tour and they've been these really amazing leaders who've gotten an opportunity to sort of learn about this history um, from a person like myself who you know has four generations in New Orleans where my grandmother grew up down the street on Conti. So it's a very personal tour, but it also very specifically delves into the work that I'm interested in doing. And, and I wanted to um, uh, also follow on um, when I read uh, the blurb about your book, and, and, and it did um, talk about sort of reinterpreting matriarchy, and it sounded like it was a very personal journey that you had taken. And I know you have four boys. Yes. And I've seen you over at um, at the uh, Pagoda. Yes. With one <laughs> or two or three or four of them. Yes. And, um, I, and and it's just, uh, I mean, I, I, I have um, four-legged children. So I really have no idea how on earth you, you juggle these, <laughs> these youngsters that you have to um, nurture and, and raise and guide with the, the work that you do. So uh, give me some sense of that personal journey that le led you to write about matriarchy. Yeah, I feel like um, it is. It's, so the book is 
uh, called Modern Matriarch. It's an ethnographic memoir, which really just means that I'm using personal narrative and story to enter into a conversation, but I'm also using analysis. Um, and so my oral histories with my grandmother, um, Edna Damiel Hamblin, who was a public health nurse at Charity, um, was also a midwife. Um, and she delivered a number of children um, in New Orleans. And, and, and in doing those oral histories, she was able to tell me how families were connected in ways that are not formalized. Um, and I just I found that to be sort of fascinating. Um, but the more personal story is that um, with my first child, I moved back from New York to New Orleans, and my grandmother was my attending midwife. So there's this really very special connection um, to her life as a Renaissance woman and as a matriarch. And so I think some of what I'm hoping to address are issues um, that separate one's marital status from this concept of matriarchy, that it, 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 you know, I've been married and divorced and partnered and, and so forth, and that that really doesn't have very much to do with the idea of, of matriarchy, but it has more to do with like um, this idea of as source energy, as someone who inherently produces both children, but also ideas that um, when resources um, are bestowed upon those leaders within those communities, they have the, the capacity to thrive. And so I think for myself, really personally, I made very deliberate decisions to have children and felt really mentally prepared and excited, and I still do, even with two teenagers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it, but have really been interested in this idea that um, the words that we use are actually very important and they hold power and weight. And in, in thinking about my own lineage, um, which is West African on my father's side, uh, Senegal and Dakar, very specifically, the Serer women, this is a this is a matrilineal you know tribe. And that um, what is understood is that the women actually have the capacity and the, there's an expectation that they will be present at all levels of decision-making. And um, I just, I, I find that fascinating as we think about where women are in the world right now, um, our feminist and womanist movements, um, and that there is this real kind of ideal time to be able to claim um, leadership. And so I have an upcoming article before the book is officially released um, that talks about motherhood as the ultimate leadership boot camp. And like, how do we make these translations of translatable experiences and skills that actually support the, the actual professional work that we do. And in my case, being able to juggle um, multiple people's schedules and needs and really understand the complexity of how those things fit together, rooted in sort of family values and like what we believe and how that shows up in our everyday actions, um, kind of directly prepared me to do the work that I'm doing at the Joan Mitchell Center. And so I wanted to explore that in a way that could be a process or a way that others could think about their work so that they wouldn't necessarily have to separate this idea of being a mother from their professional journey. And so I, I'm kind of putting myself on the line and saying, you know, actually, I don't want to separate the two. They both enhance who I am as a person, and they make me better. Um, and so that's really what I'm exploring in this personal memoir. I want to um, uh, step back into the world of the social aid and pleasure club <laughs> and, and and understand, because one thing I've never really been clear on, I mean, you have kings and queens and courts and courtiers, and of course, that's not just in the second line groups, but in all of the carnival organizations, right? And, and I've, oh, you know, when I first came here, of course, I found Mardi Gras just horrifying. I said, oh my God, they're throwing these pieces of junk off the floats and these people out here trying to get it. It just, as a Yankee, I had a hard time with that until one of my friends who is a Rex member was out in the street with me grabbing the same junk from the same parades. And I'm saying, oh, okay, I get it. It goes both ways. But I still have trouble with the whole sort of debutante matching up with the older king thing. And uh, so I really try to understand the role of men and women in all these carnival organizations. Jason, you want to take this? Yeah. I want to hear from you, too, on yeah. that. <laughs> you know, I, th I think we have to understand carnival as a constellation of identity pageants. 
and it functions for people who are in wrecks and comas and the you know high end uh, crews and organizations. If you look at the at the allure of royalty, it it passes from Africa to the New World. It passes from Europe to the New World. The uh, the Young Men Illinois Club in the African American community, uh, the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club, which has a, a lavish ball and pageant. You know, royalty is, I think it's part of... And we all watch that darn... Uh, you know, I, I just by accident tuned in the, the wedding. I just, it was, I was home and said, ha, oh, that wedding song. And it turned into this amazing cultural moment. Did you see it? I, 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 it's clothing. You saw it's it fabric. afterwards? It's design. <laughs> it's oh, marvelous. That's what I love. Right. So, yes, okay, I, so I was able to witness a, a good bit of it. And, and But the minister from America and the hymns, oh, it was amazing. I'm sorry. I, no, I no. just had to say, all the way through watching a royal wedding in another country, we're still transfixed by uh, this. Gene, that's the most robust footnote that anyone has ever done to something <laughs> that I said. <laughs> uh, but, no, you know, I mean, I, I know because I've had conversations with many a Yankee journalist who has come through town and held the nose up. How can people run around and do this? On the other hand, this is a Latin city. It's a Mediterranean city, and it is a deeply African city as well. I think New Orleans has the deepest African identity of any city in the United States. All that said, so many of these groups and social layers work out their stories, and as your guest just said, um, the narratives that, that people try to assimilate and understand, and a lot of it happens through ritual, in the same way that people go to church for a certain ritual essence in, in a sacred space. You find it in, in the march, the parading of the Mardi Gras Indians. I mean, an anthropologist, as an anthropologist, I'm sure you've studied this in great depth, but anyway, my point is that to to simply view Mardi Gras as uh, some sort of expression of elitism by people on the top misses a, a great deal more about it. Well, yeah, I figured that out after a while, but it took a few parades, trust me. But uh, uh, how did you view this this element of the of the male and the female um, uh, roles in the social aid and pleasure club today? Well. Um how do I don't put this? Um, I've never thought about it that way. Um, and the reason why I do that, because um, as she spoke, um, females are starting to, to learn their, their, their role, not, not so much their roles, but um, learning themselves as a human being. So I never really looked at it in a way of a female role or a male's role. Um, there, again, I was the king for a female club, um, again, the president is a female. So I never really looked at it in that aspect. Mm -hmm. um, what I do know is, again, what um, what we do as second liners, where the culture comes from, um, and what I love about it. So I, I never really had the opportunity um, to look at it from a male and female standpoint. So it's interesting. So it, it's not the most important aspect Not to or me. Factor the most important is um, keeping the culture alive, uh, Sundays going out there and having a good time, and showing... Um, you know, the people from different cultures who are not from here, what New Orleans is about and what it is that we stand for. So let's talk about the future of all this. So, I mean, I worry about that, right? Uh, are, are the young kids who are more engaged in, I don't even know what the most contemporary form of music is. I mean, I'm, I'm so far back, I'm still back in bounce and hip hop, and surely we're past that, right? Anybody, can you comment they, on that? They have officially. Um, transformed past hip-hop. No, I'm just kidding. I have these conversations with my son yeah, so all how, the what time. Are they, how, what do they say is the most current music form? I'm so, just curious. Because you know, I so, used to be up on this, you so know, at one time. So trap music definitely is, is, is what, you know, trap music mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, is, is definitely considered this sort of new wave or extension of hip-hop culture. And I, I find what's really interesting is, so my grandfather was a piano player. He played with um, at Preservation Hall. And one of the things my oldest son and I have been talking about lately, is this idea of sampling and how to think about legacy and how to think about the contemporary. And he's a young, um, kind of francophone-speaking, 
composer producer and and we've been talking about like having him listen to these um you know these records and actually you know meeting with Ben at Preservation Hall to have like my father and my son and us just like really talk about um you know the way in which like straight ahead jazz like played a role in like the culture and I even think about second line culture right because my father the purist is sort of like this is what second lines were for and this is the formation of them and like you know, people are taking them and doing other things. And so we have these conversations about, like, what it means to progress an idea, how to honor the past. And it's really interesting to have these intergenerational conversations about past, present, future. So I think um, they're hard. I've been trying to be that the the bridge that kind of listens and and does a little bit of translating. Who was your grandfather? Um, Charlie Skates Hamilton. Yeah. He played with George Lewis. Yes, Mm yes. So, and uh, uh, the way your second line experience is expressing right now is with an emphasis on um, a kind of, uh, a a lot of design, a lot of, um, again, pageantry, and, um, but also um, a competitive, a really powerful competitive element. I want to hear a little bit more about that. Um, from my standpoint, because that's what drives you to get on a camel and go down St. Charles Avenue, right? What would drove you got to one up the other groups, and I don't know how they're going to one up that. Well, um, I wouldn't necessarily say um, a competition for me. As a designer, um, again, I took the theme, and, and my focus is how could I pay homage to this culture that I'm representing to the max. Again, in my article, um, as Miss Katie wrote, um, it was out yesterday in The Advocate, it displayed that I'm dramatic, very lavish, and over the top, and that's me. So I only could, I only was able to take what I knew how to do and just, you know, give the community opportunity to see my work and the dyna- dynamics of my creativity. That's the only thing. That's so it is a competition, um, but I can only speak for self. Um, the purpose of the clubs coming out, and if you notice, even in her article, um, she spoke on um, the secrets of the colors, um, every um, second line, uh, every club, when you look at it, every club has something totally different. Um, some display feathers. Some display um, different sculptures of things, um, personal personal experiences in life. Um, again, something looks very futuristic, some of them. Um, the club that um, I used to belong to um, starting out at the age of six was the Sudan Social Aid and Pleasure Club. And if you look at that club, there's no plumes, there's no feathers at all because their focus is to display um, personal life experiences. Um, And when I say that, when you look at the decorations that they have, they're made with baby dolls and umbrellas. Um, There's some that would probably walk out with a um, handmade guitar. And these are from um, everyday utensils laying around the house. Um, I won't tell their deepest, darkest secrets and how they make those things, but they're very simple things, and it just shows... um, how creative we are as 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 a as the culture background of it. Um, there was a cousin of mine. Um, he had this this um, it was like a golf cart, but inside that golf on top of that golf cart was a bass guitar. I can't tell you why he chose that, but not everybody in that group had a bass guitar. So it was something that he felt um, within his heart that made him want to represent that particular instrument instrument while rolling it up the street, not carrying it as an umbrella or as a fan but he had the opportunity to roll that down the street. So it is part of a, it is sort of a competition. It was a signature piece Mm -hmm. and he felt um, in his heart that that's what he wanted to display. So that's what he used his creativity to put together. It's a long way from a funeral march, huh? Well, it is, but funerals are um, caravans of memory and they hold a mirror to the city at a given moment in time. And every funeral has its own symbolic language. He just mentioned the umbrellas, which, of course, we see in the second lines. In Africa, the umbrella was an icon of royalty. Uh, the chief would have a large umbrella held over him by his retainers. There are many images of this. So, you know, I think one of the exciting things about living in, in a city uh, such as this is that we are, we are learning a language of renewal as we begin to understand how the various layers of, of humankind 
come together. Um, you know, it's an improvisational conversation that, that we're having across lines of color and class, uh, of gender. But, I, I, you know, for all of our problems, for all the flooding, for all the mosquitoes, <laughs> I, I, I think we're doing a pretty good job of getting to know one another. And I hope that everyone listening will go to Kickstarter and please support my film, City of a Million Dreams. <laughs> I'm glad you got that in because we are we're getting close on our time. He sort of worked that in really well, right? All right. Okay, we're sort of coming close, and uh, so I would like to have sort of some closing um, observations um, from each of you out of our conversation. Um, I, I I wonder why, in a way, the only good thing that came out of the numbers of people that left New Orleans is that we have spread the diaspora of New Orleans and it's got to be having an impact in places like Houston and Atlanta and Baton Rouge and, you know, as far-fetched places as Arizona where some of us landed and so on. So that's the only thing that um, takes the edge off. The, lo- the loss of people that uh, we saw as a result of some very bad bureaucratic practices and, and of course, the devastation of the, of the breaking of the levees. But um, I, I wonder uh, whether our, this culture, this celebratory element, this creativity, couldn't have a broader value at a time when we are up against some really nasty, nasty politics at the national level. So, uh, you know, uh, how can how can we maybe see the it, the values that you're talking about and the the way we have learned to navigate these complicated, in some ways very rigid and um, restrictive systems, but we've learned how to negotiate our way in and out of them. How can this be a value nationally? process of elimination, I'll answer. Um, I think people come to the city because it is such an, an orchestration of humanity. And for all of the problems that you just cited, this is a city with a song in its heart. And it is a, it is, it is a, a human tapestry that lives against the odds. And after three centuries is still growing, still learning. So even with the problems that we have, this is a city people want to come to because I think we've learned the secret of living life well. Gia. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I want to reference um, the fact that I think this is a hyper-creative city, and I, I would agree it's a, it's a place that you can come um, that's the laissez-faire, the do-what-you-want mentality. And so, so like creativity is ex- expected, but it's also celebrated here in ways that um, make it very difficult for other people to do in other parts of the country. And, and I would add that um, I think our artists, our culture bearers, our creatives are at the forefront of um, us thinking about what we want our society to be. I mean, when we engage our, our creative selves, when we imagine, when we can see ourselves beyond the current circumstances, we actually have a chance to, um, to create something new. And so I think at the residency center, at the, at the Joe Mitchell Center, I'm really interested in how we give people space, time, and resources to do that work. And by the way, you have a call for artists out right now, we right? We do. New Orleans-based artists, if you are a native with a birth certificate or you have lived in New Orleans for five years and you're a visual artist, um, we have an open call application, um, and it ends June 11th. And right now, seven of our ten artists are folks of color, and are also from New Orleans, seven of the ten. So we're really website, proud of that. Website. The Joan, Joan Mitchell Center slash today. Okay. Last words. Well, um, just to piggyback off of what she said, it's the city Come of on. do what you want to, you know. Um, <laughs> and again, <laughs> again, I'm focusing on the, the birth of jazz. Um and the Rebirth Brass Band. So do what you want to say is a lot. It's the city, um, like you said during Mardi Gras, you, it didn't make sense to you, but it's the city of sin where you can come and let your hair down and be the person that you never thought that you ever could be. And you change. <laughs> and yeah. it changes you. 
and hopefully we can keep having an impact on the, our country because they need it out there bad. This is Jean Nathan. It's Cross Sun Conversations. We're done for this time. Right. Next week we will focus on hurricane season, and I will get my buddy Verdon McKay on here to talk about how we can prepare for it. And we'll talk to some people about the threats that we have to our very existence here. Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. Thank you all. Thank you very much, Jason, Gia, Marvin.